yo, yo, yo. Welcome to episode number 41 of the Basketball Card Podcast. I'm Adam. Uh, you know by now that my Instagram is at the real 27 guy, but if this is the first time you've joined, then there you go. Uh, thank you for downloading the podcast today. I think today will be shorter than it has been uh, historically. I've been like getting up towards the hour mark, or I think in the case of the last one, I even passed the hour mark. That's way too long. Um, but uh, appreciate all the feedback, guys. The last, the the last few episodes. Um, each one, it seems like, is getting listened to more and more, and the numbers are amazing. You guys know hobby content is booming. It's crazy. It's crazy to think that our little tiny, I say our, my little tiny podcast um, uh, started almost four years ago. And uh, that, uh, you know, obviously took a, took a three-year break there in the middle. But to think about where where we've come in that time is crazy. You know, when I started it, I didn't start it because I thought I was going to be a good uh, host of a podcast. And I didn't start it because um, I thought that I was the only one who could do it. I started it because I wanted to have other good hobby content out there. I listened to a lot of podcasts and I thought... How come there isn't a basketball card podcast? And now there's several of them, and I think that's really, really cool. So uh, I think that today's episode should be a good one, and let me just tell you about it. We are going to talk first about the difference between patches and jerseys. I put a comment out on my Instagram, and I was surprised at some of the responses that I got, so we're going to take a minute or two on that. And then for the main part of today's episode, and this is where I will lose a good percentage of you, but I hope not. Uh, today, I want to talk to you guys about why I rank my collection and why I do that silly, stupid, weird countdown that I do every year. Uh, I'm doing it for the third year, and I want to tell you why. Is it just me pumping all of my cards? Well, I'll let you guys decide, but I'll tell you why I think I do it, and you can tell me whether you think I'm crazy. Um, after I talk about that, for the bulk of the show, I want to go through a Beckett's a Beckett Bites uh, segment, November 2002's Beckett Basketball Monthly with Jay Williams on the cover, and some things that I found as I went through there that are interesting and maybe some um, cautionary tales for us uh, in 2020. Um, but first, let's talk about patches and jerseys. One of the things that I have noticed recently is that it seems to me that the word patch and the word jersey is now basically used interchangeably and one of the same by a lot of eBay sellers, including the main consigners out there. But it's not just them who's doing it. It's a lot of people. And so I commented on Instagram today and I said, hey, this is something that I'm, in, I'm noticing and it's really annoying. I got more responses to that than I thought I would. Probably had eight to 10 people respond back to me. And most of them were like, yeah, it really bothers me too. I've noticed that I'm, when I'm looking for patch cards, I get a lot of jersey cards that show up. But I had two questions that came through. And I love when I get these types of questions because I'm a big believer that there aren't dumb questions. Um, when we have a hobby where some of us have been here for three decades and some of us have been here for three weeks, it's, uh, it's good to be able to ask those questions. And um, although some people have tried, there aren't perfect places to know everything. Um, you can go to blowout and you can try, you can ask questions there, but you might get the wrong person try to trying to answer you and you might not have somebody who's willing to step in and tr try to correct them. Um, so the question of the day is, 
What's the difference between a jersey card and a patch card? It seems like it might be kind of simple, but maybe it isn't. Because I do think that there are cards that we refer to refer to as jersey cards that have multicolored cards on multicolored pieces of jersey. And we have cards that are patches that are only one colors or one color. So, you know, what makes the difference? Well, um, I think the thing that's that, that you have to understand is if you go back to really the inception of jersey cards um, and patch cards, there was a clear delineation that was made by all of the companies. And for the most part, that delineation has been maintained up until today. In the beginning, there was simply jersey cards. What's interesting about that is if you look back to the very first jersey card set, um, the 1997-98 Upper Deck set that has Michael Jordan's All-Star Game jersey in it, some of those cards were multicolored. And although the multicolor cards had, um, you know, color that weren't from, from stitched on patches, um, in, in the years that came after, those cards would almost always be referred to as patches. But it was part of a jersey card set. Upper Deck called it a jersey card set. And the majority of the set was plain jersey pieces. Now, there might have been, again, multicolored stuff that got in there. But most of it was just one color. In the subsequent years, Upper Deck and then later Fleer and Tops came out with sets that were specifically for the purpose of, of containing multicolored pieces of trim numbers, the numbers off the jersey, the name off the jersey, the team name, and tags as well. Um, the first rookie patch set that I can remember, I might be wrong about this, um, was the 2001 Fleer exclusive rookie set. Those cards were not numbered, but rookies were numbered to 550 or less, if I remember right. And all of the cards had were supposed to have really multicolored jerseys. Some of them were just barely two colors. Some of them were only one color, but they had tags in them as well. I remember right after the product came out, I got a Pau Gasol rookie card that had um, a piece of the champion tag on the bottom of the jersey. And so these were patch cards. That that has been the definition historically. Um, I'll give you one one other example. In 97 and 98, you had Upper Deck making jersey cards, and then in 99, they made patch cards. And those patch cards, again, were multicolored. And then in 2000, they made the first patch autograph cards. They made in Upper Deck, this is this is shameless plug because I own one of these cards, and it's one of my best and favorite cards. Um, in 2000, they made the uh, they made four patch autographs numbered to the jersey number of the player Gary Payton Kevin Garnett Michael Jordan and number eight Kobe Bryant well that Kobe that I that I bought you know several months ago and is definitely one of the best cards in my collection is a one colored jersey and so you'd say well is this a jersey or is it a patch that year upper deck made it a little bit confusing because there are jersey autographs and there are patch autographs so how do you tell the difference well upper deck made the cards completely different. They had the word patch on the cards that were patches and the cards that were patches were thicker, a significantly thicker cardstock. Why were there a thicker cardstock? 
because it takes a thicker cardstock to sort of house a, a jersey that has multi-layers or that thicker fabric in it. So although they look similar from the face of the card, if you read on them, you can see the upper deck intended for cards with multi multi-color and significant pieces of the jersey to be referred to as patches and other cards to be referred to as jerseys, more simple ones to be referred to as jerseys. This wasn't something that lasted one or two years. Fast forward to 2003, exquisite basketball. If you know that set really well, you know that that is the advent of the base RPAs. They weren't the first rookie patch autographs. Those were in 2001 Ultimate Collection, the great Kwame Brown uh, RPA that I had, number to 25 that I thought I would retire on. Not so much, but uh, but the 2003 had the 2003 RPAs were again supposed to be multicolored. Some of them weren't, but they were they were supposed to be multicolored pieces of the uniform from the number and the lettering. You get it, you get it. I don't need to keep repeating it. Um, but within also within the 2003 exquisite product was a jersey portion of the set. That was the extra exquisite. Um, cards numbered to 25 and cards numbered to 75 and those were not intended intended to be patches those were intended to be jersey cards this is how it has always been um, and this is this is the way that card companies have intended it to be but it does seem like uh, people who have been listing their cards now have just decided you know what it seems like it's reasonably acceptable for me to just do this and for those of us who care about kind of delineating between key differences within the hobby, it's kind of frustrating because in some cases there are, you know, different parallels um, where there's a jersey parallel and then a patch parallel. And if they're always listed as patches, then it kind of, it's easy to sort of forget that there's something that's different. Fleer did a number of those sets through the years where the two sets looked almost identical, but the patch version was a lot lower, a lot lower numbered. Um, and if you just call the jerseys patches, then it kind of gets confusing. So I hope that explains it to those of you who, who had who had a couple of questions about it. Took longer on that than I meant to. That's not the first time I'll do that and not the last time. Okay, so let's talk about the main thing that I wanted to talk about today though. And that is a question. Why do I rank my collection? Why do I do that silly, stupid, crazy, time-consuming countdown that I do every year? I started it in 2018 on Blowout Carts. Uh, that thread is still there in all of its awesomeness. You can go check it out. I go check it out all, I, probably once every couple of months um, where I counted down from 100 to 1. I think I still have about half of the cards that were on that list originally. Um, I've turned over a lot more this year. But uh, th for, for that, what I did is I'd list the card and I'd list why it was important to my collection. And the thing that I did that I think a lot of people don't understand is really my goal was to list the collection based on the value, the monetary value, nothing nothing weird about this, from 100 to 99. So what's the 100th most valuable item in my collection all the way down to what I believe is my most valuable item in my collection. And some people are like, that's not cool. You should just rank things based on how you like them. I don't think that, I mean, that's not the purpose of, of doing the list for me, okay? And I'll talk about that 
I'll talk about that here in, here in a moment. But um, the the countdown is for the is for the reason of counting down my items from the least valuable at number 100 to the most valuable at number one. Uh, I basically just use Excel to do that. Um, I, I list stuff at the, you know at the beginning and I go through and and every time I, I, I get to the next one, I say, okay, what's you know of these of these items that are a lot of them are really close, you know, which one do I believe is worth the least? And it's a hard process because you get to the point pretty quickly where you're like, I don't want this card to come off the list and then something has to come off the next day. Um, so back in 2018, I wrote several paragraphs about each card and I really enjoy doing that. And then last year, I started making videos. Um, one minute videos as Instagram allows in their regular format um, that highlights specific features of the card and highlights me talking about them and then I also include a little written portion underneath. And uh, I just use iMovie to do that. I do everything on my phone. It's not complicated. You could totally do it if you wanted to. Um, and I went, you know, 100 through one last year. Uh, some of those videos at this point have been viewed over a thousand times, which in Instagram's world is kind of cool. Um, and I, and I typically get, you know, on on an average card, sometimes I might not get anybody who reaches out who asks questions about it, but usually it engages people, um, at least a few people, and gets some questions out there. And I like it most when those are within the, you know, within the comments below because I think there are other people who wonder those things. And sometimes people are nervous to ask questions, which I which um, I'm a I'm a big a proponent of getting over believe that people should ask questions and, and we should talk about things a lot in the hobby and that's really why I have the why I have the podcast and why I have Instagram is to sort of walk through and answer some of those questions so I did that last year and now I'm doing it again this year I think I've gotten a little bit better at the video um, but I've added a couple of little things and and one of the things that I'm doing is in my story on Instagram I'll post I'll post the the card the last two cards from the countdown and ask uh, everybody to rank which card they believe is better uh, but what i'm really asking them is which card do you believe is worth more some people's collections you can tell pretty easily what cards are worth because they have a lot of easy comps my cards are weird because i collect weird stuff and so this this uh that's one of the reasons why i do this and and i'll get to that in a second but I want to tell you two two stories about me from my youth real quick that kind of explain why I do this silly little countdown every year. So when I was um, maybe seven, my mom fished out of the, the closet this blue box that she said that I could have for my cards. And this blue box is about 10 inches across, um, 6 inches wide, and maybe four inches deep and it has a little combination on it. I still have it. I've had it for you know, 30 years. And this box contained my basketball card collection for a number of years. It now houses a 1986-87 Fleer set that I put together when I was, you know, between, between the ages of like eight and 14. Um, and that's what it's had in it for years. But when, but, but for for a long time, for probably ten years, I put my best cards in that box. And in the beginning, that meant, you know, just shoving all sorts of random things in that box. But what what happened 
as time went by is, you know, I got better cases and I got cases that would fit not necessarily just in a row, but had a specific order and methodology for fitting the most nice cases in this, um, in this blue box. And, you know, the, not everything in my collection would fit in this blue box, but, but the cards that I liked the most would fit in this blue box. And as I went to the store or as I went to the shop and got the new Beckett, or as I had the new Beckett, you know, arrive at my house, if I had a subscription at the time, I would see which cards had moved up and which cards had moved down in value. And I'd have to try to figure out which, you know, which cards were my favorite. I would guess that I could probably fit in all of their cases and everything, probably somewhere between 40 and 60 cards in, in that box, in that blue box, um, that blue safe. Um, and, and like I say, my goal was to, to fit in the best ones. That to me was a really, it seems really simple, but it was a really great principle because I realized that there was only so much space for my best items. Um, you know, I, I had these, these snap tight holders and then I had some other ones that were probably still called snap type, but they had this funny little mechanism on them. I, I can still remember the cases. I can remember when I upgraded to some screw downs. I remember having some four screws. I remember my first graded cards that I had in there. And, um, and I, like I say, I used that for years to figure out what parts of my collection were most important to me. And then when we went out of town to go on a family vacation or whatever, I would take this silly little blue box and I would figure out where I could hide it in my house so that I could keep my best cards safe while I was gone. My family didn't have a lot of money growing up, but I always had this little card collection that I thought was really cool. And, you know, when I was a kid, it probably at most times was worth maybe a couple hundred dollars or even less than that. But I was always just sort of trying to upgrade and make my make my collection into the best thing that I possibly could. Well, if you fast forward, you know, 30 years, I'm basically in the same sort of place. Right? I still collect basketball cards and I collect them in a way that is really similar. I don't just have a blue box now, right? <laughs> but um, I do still want to be able to keep my cards and my collection consolidated to a point where it's not just like, it's not just like, you know, all over the place. Um, so there, there's, there's a couple other stories that I was going to share, but I think that one give, gives you the gist of it. So there's five main reasons why I do this countdown and um, why I did the, the blue box once upon a time. And, and, uh, and I want to share those things with you guys now. The first reason is I think that it's easy to become a hoarder. I think a lot of us probably in this hobby have some of that mentality. And some of you might say, no, I don't. I think most of us probably do. And we might, we may have beaten it out of ourselves a little bit, but I think most of us have this, like, I want to have everything. I want to keep everything. I want to collect this thing. And um, I know that when I buy stuff a lot, most of the time, I don't want to sell it um, afterwards because I buy stuff that I like. And generally that's all that I buy. I don't open wax um, almost ever. It's been a long time since I've opened my own box of cards. Uh, so anything that I buy is usually something that I like and there's a real specific reason why I'm buying it. But there still can be too much of that. You know, you can't, and I kind of have the, the opinion that you can't just buy stuff that you like forever. 
you need to have a limit. And most of us have some limits that are economic limits, right? But depending on what you what you collect, you may just fill your house with the rooms and rooms. Um, there was a podcast that I did a few years ago on, um, I think it was called, you know, what you do with a 500,000 card collection. And um, I helped a friend, a guy who I've known really since I was just a little kid um, here in, in Salt Lake, who had this massive collection and he needed to be able to move on from it, but he was in kind of the early stages of dementia and, and he just needed help. And as I went over his house and I saw his rooms, rooms, plural, uh, that were filled with cards. It just, it, it was kind of a cautionary tale to me and I still love him and think he's a wonderful, he was a wonderful man. Um, and a lot of redeeming good qualities, but he had this issue where he just let stuff spread out forever and that's not something that I think any of us should want to do you know your cards hopefully are a hobby for you but hopefully they're not your life you know hopefully they're not the most important thing to you um and um so so yeah I I think it's important to not to not be a hoarder and and by limiting the number of items or or sets or things within my collection which for me is the magic number of 100 I think that's that's a super helpful thing for all of us. And I would, I would encourage any of you to pick a number and to figure out you know, how to, how to order it um, for yourself and then get rid of the other stuff. You know, creating space is just a wonderful blessing in your life. If you can take half of a closet and clear that out, it's pretty cool actually. Or if you've got, you know, space against your wall, that's just always covered with card stuff. When that just becomes space, it's really helpful. And there's nothing wrong with giving stuff away and there's nothing wrong with throwing stuff away too. Okay. So that's number one reason why I do a countdown. Not, this is in no particular order. So that's not the main reason, but it's one reason. Okay. The number two reason or the second reason I should say is that it's a great way to manage inventory. If you have a list, like I say, just in Excel that is all the different things that you have and then you can put like an estimated value on it and you can have your cost next to it. It's a really easy way to keep track of what you have and um, and uh, that's, that's really helpful. And that kind of takes me to number three, which is it's a great way to figure out how to create cash. Um, I've had some times recently, in fact, I'm really in the middle of one of these instances right now where I had a really big, important, cool card come to me that I had the chance to acquire and I didn't expect it but it came to me and I looked at it and I went well shoot I don't have the money for that but that could be a really important part of my collection it really fit a need and I haven't gotten it yet so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you guys what it is yet but I'll mention it on a future mail day Um, so but then the question comes, how do I afford this thing? Because it's a lot of money, right? Some of these cards have become so expensive. The great thing is, though, that my the rest of my cards have gone up at the same time. So although I'm spending an amount of money on a card that just seems insane, and it really does, it totally seems insane, it's not that difficult to then say, well, I'm going to move these other things that have also moved up to an insane level so that I can go get this card. So last week I got on Instagram and in the matter of like four hours, I made many, many thousands of dollars just selling some stuff that I, that, that was less important to my collection. Now here's the problem. Again, I only collect stuff that I like. So I had to sell stuff that I really liked to get this other thing that I like. And I still, I feel good about it, but it's hard to let some of those things go. 
This is where the list comes in, or the countdown. I look at the countdown and I say, what of those items, what, what's the monetary value that I can get-ish for them? And how important is that thing to my collection? You know, do I have an, an, another card of that player that's on the countdown that fills that need? Do I have something else that fills, that fills the purpose of that card in the collection? And if the answer is no, then it's hard for me to then move on from it. If the answer is no, but it doesn't really matter as much to my collection, then I can move on from it. But it, it's, it's an easy way to say, you know, which cards matter the least, but have the most economic value that I can then move to get the thing that I really want. And so that's what I did last week. And sometime ne next week, hopefully, if everything goes well, I'll have that that really important card to my collection and and I will still miss the other stuff, but because I had the countdown and because I had it all in a way that was really organized, it enabled me to do that in a good way. And also, and this is just a tip for everyone, the, one of the reasons that I've been able to build my collection the way that I have this last five, five years or so is that I haven't been willing to sell my best cards. And that sounds strange. It's like, well, don't you have to sell your best cards to get, you know, to get great stuff? You know, that is, that that's true a lot of the time, but I just think there are certain cards that you know you can't ever get back. And if those are at the top of your list, then you know that's something that I don't want to sell. Now, something maybe is at the top of your list and you think, well, that's something I don't need anymore. Then maybe you sell it. But everything that I bought for years and years that's at the top of my collection is stuff that I want. And so, you know, as I think about this card that, I, that I'll be getting, I think it's a top 10 card in my collection. If it's not top 10, it's just outside it. And I sold a couple of cards in the 30s and then a couple of cards in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and so I sold something like eight cards for my top 100 to get this one card and then some stuff outside of, of that but I was able to do it and feel good about it okay so that's the number three reason figure out how to create cash and know what stuff is worth um, compared to what it's worth to you okay number four this might be the biggest reason I told Chris from House of Jordans that I, th I thought this was my, my main reason I like writing and discussing cards because it's fun <laughs> it's therapeutic it's fun like I don't, I don't know what else to say i like talking about cards i liked going into the card shop um back when i worked there and then afterwards i liked talking to certain customers i like talking to members of our community today i like going to national and seeing people and I like having friends in the hobby who have the same, who speak the same language. And I love talking about the things that matter and, and seeing things that are that other people have passion for. I like all of that. And um, that's kind of hard to understand, I think, if you're not into the cards as much. For the people who are, who are just into cards for money, they will never understand why you can write you know, thousands of words on a single piece of cardboard. But the thing that I've found, and there's a few people who I'm thinking of specifically right now, the people who are able to write the most words about cardboard seem to be, in, in a lot of cases, the people who care about it the most. And those of you who are out there uh, know who I'm talking about, <laughs> um, if, uh, if I've mentioned it to you before. But, like, I, it's fun. It's really fun to talk about cards. It's really fun to do a podcast about cards. 
it's fun to make a movie about cards. You know, I used to do that sorting thing with my blue box and get everything out on the floor and change cards out of cases, which is probably the worst thing I could have done for them, and, and figuring out how to rank things. And I'd put them up on a stand, and there was this time where I built this thing on wood that was really cool that I used cellophane and probably destroyed the cards, and I put it above my doorway. I did all these different things with cards through the years. And and in some weird ways, in my you know late 30s, I'm still doing some of these things um i'm not using cellophane and wood to put cards on the wall but i'm still doing some of these things because it's still therapeutic it's still fun and but what's great is the community is better than it's ever been i might not have a card shop that i go to where i connect with people but i've got like hundreds at least in the many dozens of friends that i know and i know their first names and i know sometimes their families and i've had people visit and um you know it's it's still it's still as fun as it's ever been for those for those kind of weird weird reasons um but uh, writing about it is a part of that for me and um and although i never got to be somebody who would write for beckett um you know i've run i've read that i've written thousands of posts on blowout um and i've done you know you know however many 40 something podcasts and um done who knows how many interviews and things and um, been you know done all sorts of stuff and it's because it's fun guys that's that's the number one reason that's why i love it and that's why it's it's 12 30 now and i should be in bed but i'm sitting here talking about cards the last reason is that every collection is a work of art and what uh what does mine need in it that's missing so i kind of covered this a little bit in number one but you have to ask the question sometimes of what you need in your collection what's missing what player what set what card and you don't have to collect like me, right? You don't need some sort of well-rounded collection that has, you know, at least one card of each of the, the NBA's greatest 10 players in your, in your top 100. You know, you don't need to make sure that you have cards from each of the decades or a certain number of autograph cards or a certain number of, card, number of cards that aren't autographed or a certain number of rookies or patch autos. Those are things that I actually look at. I look at the balance of my collection and say... Do I have enough of this? Do I not have enough of that? And I make sure that everything that's in it is something that I really like. And I'm pretty proud of where it's where it's come because it's really like, it's really me, right? It's like stuff that I care about. I had somebody kind of, uh, kind of make fun of me a little bit talking about how random my collection was a couple months ago. I didn't really like that. Um, I mean, it wasn't like my feelings was really, were really hurt, but it didn't sit well with me because my collection isn't random it's put together in a way that it's it's like exactly what I want it to be until there's something else that comes up that that makes it better. I've had people argue with me and say, "Well, you sold this thing because you thought you should sell it." And and I think about those things probably less than other people. I think a lot of people are out there trying to like time the market and trying to figure out like when they should buy or when they should sell. I I've found out for like I am not I've timed some things really well. But I'm not perfect at it. What I know is what I what I really like and what is important to my collection. And so I think far less about am I selling this now right at the right moment than probably the average collector does. And I think a lot more about does this thing need to be in my collection? You know, what is my collection without this card? Um, those are questions that I ask and maybe that's a little bit different than most people but that's probably because of how I think about the money is a little bit different than most people I'm not 
just looking to maximize dollars. What I think is interesting is as I've done what I've done, as I've created my collection, I do think that in a lot of ways I have maximized dollars. I'm sure I've made some mistakes. Um, I'm sure you know if, if I had a time machine, I could definitely go back and do some things differently. But I've put it together in a way that I'm proud of and that I really like and is me. And it's very different. Right? There's cards in the top 100 that range from the 60s up until the last year. And there's all different types of things, but it's, you know, it's, it's me and it, it's, uh, it's what I think, you know, it it leans towards the jazz. Um, it has lots of nineties stuff. Obviously there's a lot more eminence cards in there than most people would like, but I love eminence and I joke about it all the time because I love that. I had a guy today, a well-known collector is like, yeah, I don't like that set. That's great. (laughs) Like, I just think that's fabulous. Um, the best thing in this in this hobby is when you can find something that you really love that other people don't. Um, unfortunately, that isn't the case with Eminence. There are way too many people who like it, and not all, not enough of it to go around. Um, but anyway, that's the that's really the fifth reason. So those are those are your five reasons, guys. Those are the five reasons why I um, why I put together the list. Hopefully, as you've listened to this, you've uh, hopefully as you listen to that long twenty minutes on why I put together a, a list every year, you kind of get a little feeling why and as I talked about the blue box and and what that represented to me and how that kind of plays into how I do it today I would encourage you guys to do the same thing I really would you don't have to make the list out there and and make it public It, it for me it's good because it helps me sort of encapsulate all of these other things that I'm talking about but make a list for yourself figure out which things matter the most figure out how to prioritize your collection Figure out what you need most in your collection. It may be a specific card, maybe a specific player. Um, I love the idea of putting together a collection that's not based around a set, but is based around an idea. And for me, that idea was I want to create a collection of cards that I like that represent a well-rounded history of the game um, that, that have um, the most important players featured and the most but lean heavily towards the most important players of my you know of my life and that's what i've done and so i hope you guys like that all right let's move to beckett bites um i hope you guys like that i think that was pretty good um beckett bites this week this week is going to be interesting because i think it serves as a cautionary tale of where we are in 2020 this beckett is from november 2002 and features the great jay williams you may, if you're younger, know him from ESPN. You may not know he was the second pick of the 2002 NBA draft by the Chicago Bulls. And because of an accident, I think it was a motorcycle accident, had his career derailed. He was supposed to be the next great one, guys, and uh, he didn't last very long. The 2002 draft was um, headlined by the great Yao Ming, who was extremely popular, but unfortunately didn't have the longest NBA career. Um, the front of this Beckett has Yao Ming, um, Yao Ming on the inside. So if you were to pull the magazine apart, you would have a little, uh, a little uh, two-page uh, poster of Yao uh, looking out at you. On the front inside cover is an SP Game Used rookie of Drew Gooden, who was, if I remember right, I've got a weird memory for stuff like this. I think he was the fourth pick in the 2002 draft. So let me just do this for memory real quick. Yao was one. Jay Williams was two. Who was three? Oh, it was Mike Dunleavy Jr. Four was Drew Gooden. Five was Nikolaj Skidishvili. 
six, six Amari. I think six was Amari. No, six was Dewan Wagner. I think I think Amari was like nine, and Nene was eight, and um, uh, there's some other guys in there, but we'll we'll get to some of those as we as we look through this Beckett, um, because this Beckett leaned hard away from the current stars of the day, and leaned into um, some of the some of the new rookies. They realized that the Jordan boom of him coming back to the Wizards is over, and so. Um, there's the other thing that I noticed because I've been looking at some other older Becketts. Uh, the older Becketts were weren't as filled with ads. There's a lot of ads in these in in this as the years went by, and it, I think it made for a lot less enjoyable reading style. The the articles there aren't any articles that are really like that really captured me in this. There's some product previews on page six. There's a product preview of. SP or sorry, Upper Deck Game Used Edition. I call it SP Game Used. Oh yeah, that's what it's called on the box, but they call it Upper Deck Game Used in the words, which I think is wrong. They should have called it SP Game Used. Um, I mean, this box, if I remember right, it had like six packs at like thirty bucks a piece. It doesn't actually say that. In the, yes, it does. And it says, sorry, it says six packs, three cards per, fourteen cards from the base set. That's that's actually. Uh, um, a underrated base set, O2 SP game used because of how hard it was to put together. Pulled two rookies, Curtis Borchard and Vincent Yarbrough. Pulled two inserts, uh, significance autograph of Antoine Walker and significance autograph gold of Troy Murphy. Best card in the box was an Antoine Walker significance auto, guys. For 200 to 300 bucks, that is rough. I mean, that is really rough. Uh, some of those early 2000 Upper Deck sets were just awful. I mean, some of them were awful into the mid 2000s. Even if I mean, unless you were getting a LeBron rookie, you were you were really not hitting something. Got some more ads. Story about Sean Marion. Story about or uh, a buy the box of 2002 tops. The best card that was was pulled in the box was a Jay Williams base rookie card. Oof. Oof. Sage 2002. Sage was interesting. I actually really like Sage. Um, some of the first cool sticker autographs. Some people don't think they're cool. I think they're cool. Guys, early rookies or early autographs. You know, some of Kobe's kind of cool autographs you could get in some of those early years. One autograph per pack and a lot of them. The hot list was just, uh, just a disgrace. 2002 SP Game Use with Carlos Boozer featured. Yao Ming autographs everywhere. Jay Williams autographs. Jersey card of Lamar Odom and Corey Maggette. I mean, just bad. Then the hot singles. I mean, you've got redemption cards for Yao Ming cards that today are worth 12 bucks. Kobe Bryant Finest. Kobe Bryant SP are the only really recognizable cards on this whole list. Bad stuff. The Beckett, uh, the, the typing is noticeably smaller on the prices. Um... I looked earlier. the The flare metal thing that I've been checking in each of the in each of the backets is still true in this one. It was, it basically hadn't changed. PMG Red Jordan was listed for six hundred bucks. PMG Ch Championship Jordan fourteen hundred bucks. Telling you guys, that's the card. <laughs> I I have to admit it's because I own the card. Um, I have to say that. I I don't think it's cool when people pump up a card and they don't let you know that they have it. I own the card. That's why I think it's better. 
Um, but everybody thinks their stuff is better, right? So the other thing that I think, I, I called this out last time, and I just, I can't believe they ever did this. So at the back of the Beckett, sorry, at the back of the listing section there, or the price guide section, there is a graded card section. Tell me if you see a problem with this. 1986-87 Fleer. Uh, Michael Jordan, mint. Well, you can find a mint Jordan in the price guide in the graded section. And there are three prices. First is mint BGS. Mint BGS Jordan rookie was listed from $2,000 to $4,500. Mint PSA Jordan rookie was $1,000. $2,500. And a mint other graded, which is probably, we're just referring to SGC at the time, was, um, I lost it, I looked away for a second, was $600 to $1,200. Does anyone see anything wrong with the fact that the price guide that also runs the grading company was listing their graded cards for significantly more than the competition's? The interesting thing is I, I did believe this. And back then I did feel like BGS was better. Um, I did know of graded cards in 2002. I knew of them before that. I think the first time I remember looking at graded cards was 99. Um, and I always felt like Beckett was, was the hardest. Older Beckett graded cards are still a, a really good way to go, especially if you're looking to, to bump them. That's not something I've ever gotten into because I just don't think it's interesting. It doesn't really do it for me, but I'm pretty sure you could make some money doing that. But think about that for a sec, guys. People actually thought it was okay that the grader, who was also the magazine producer, priced their graded cards at significantly more than the competition. Think about that. It's not something we'd let fly in 2020. Okay. This is... Oh, man, this is rough. There is a section at the end of this Beckett that's about 10 pages long. Six, eight, ten pages long. And then there are more ads. And this 10-page this section is called Meet and Greet. Want to get to know an NBA player before you make a commitment to collect his cards? Here's your chance. So they highlight um, 10 rookies. Or maybe more. Yeah, I think it's 10 rookies from 2002. I want you to listen to this. And remember as we are... As, as some of you... I'm not... Some of you who are listening to this right now are people who speculate on cards all the time. I, I don't speculate on cards very often. There is, in my collection, I, in my top 100, I think there's about, it's probably about 30 cards of active players. And that's because I've got a bunch of LeBron and I've got, you know, some Durant, and Harden and a bunch of Gobert's and a Donovan Mitchell. Um, the only card that I think, the only cards that I have that are speculative are I've got a Donovan Mitchell Gala rookie, and I've got the Trey Young Gold Optic, which is a really big card and clearly highly speculative. It could probably, it could, that card could possibly be the most valuable card in my collection next year, or it could be like out of the top 100. I don't know. I don't know about Trey Young. I think he's good, and I, I think he's interesting. That's why I own the card. Um, that's why I bought it. But, um, but yeah, like I, I don't, I'm not super speculative, but some of you really are. And that's what you love about the hobby. I love a lot about the hobby that's not related to being speculative. Um, having said that, let the following 10 names be a cautionary tale. Because these are the 10 names who Beckett pulled out as interesting players 
first-round draft picks who you know you might want to get to know before you collect their cards. The number one player that they listed was the great Dewan Wagner, who also might have been great if you didn't have his health issues. But there he is, Dewan Wagner. Number two. This is not in any like order, but I'm just going to number them because that's what I do. Number two, Casey Jacobson. Number three, Jay Williams. Number four, Nikolaz Skidishvili. Number five, Karan Butler. Number six, Chris Jeffries. Number seven, Drew Gooden. And number eight, Juan Dixon. I think Karan Butler made an all-star team. I think he made one. And I think that was the only one out of this whole list. Guys, unfortunately, in our world of cardboard, limited rookie cards of players that don't end up being any good really just dive. <laughs> I, I know. I had a Andre Kirilenko basketball card collection that I had when I went to serve my uh, LDS mission. And then I came home and I thought, this card, this collection is going to be worth a fortune. And it was worth some fraction of what it was when I left. Um, that is what happens sometimes. And um, this Beckett also represents, I think, actually unrelated to the rookie class. It represents the falling away from the hobby. Our, our hobby is very popular right now. And... It doesn't seem like that's going to slow down anytime soon. It seems like it's probably going to keep going that direction. But at some point, we're going to go through lulls, and you're going to see cards that were worth $1,000 that are worth 20 And you're going to see cards that have decreased by 80 and 90 and 99%. That's what happens. That's what happens in the hobby, especially when you're collecting speculative players. Um, but it happens with Jordan cards, too. I I um I always cringe when somebody talks about a safe investment in the hobby. There is no safe investments when it comes to cardboard. And um I think I am qualified to say that because I've been here for 30 years and I've seen lots of safe investments that have really decreased in a hurry. You know, people were talking about the Michael Jordan rookie just a couple weeks ago or a month ago being a $100,000 card. Uh, the PSA 10, and then you see copies that are 60. Um, I didn't ever believe it was a $100,000 card. Maybe somebody actually paid that for it. Maybe they did. Um, and if they did, I don't want to make light of it because we all make mistakes and paying too much. Maybe they don't feel like they made a mistake either. But just because somebody tells you something's a safe investment doesn't, doesn't mean that it is. Things can move up. Things can move down. We're in a real party right now. It's a party that I think uh, is really hyped. It's hyped. It's going well. People are glad to be here. Everything's good. Everything's you know seems like it's going up. Everything's hot. It might not be forever. Does that mean you should go sell now? I have no idea. Guys, stuff could double again in the next couple of months. I just have no idea. What I do know is that you should collect what you like and figure out what things bring you joy and collect those things and then if it all goes to zero you'll still have something that you like but if you get lucky and make good decisions and don't overspend and don't open too much wax 
it can be the greatest hobby in the world, guys. And uh, uh, that's been my experience. And uh, I hope it's your experience. And uh, um, I want to thank you guys again, as always, for joining the episode today and to listen to some of my random ramblings. Um, and until next time, happy collecting. Thank you.